Hey everybody, uh, Baz out the smart party here. I'm here with Gaz, and um, before we get started uh, on today's show, just wanted to put a word out there. Uh, we got some terrible news today. Um, today, the gaming community lost one of its stalwarts, friend of the show, gamer at large, but not in recent years due to some really terrible bad health that he's suffered through for a very long time. Today, we lost our friend Mick Reed, and not good. It's been a long time since Mick's been able to get out and about and be at cons and be the guy that we knew he was. And that's that's the sad news that we've had today is that he has finally passed. Terrible times. And we just wanted to say not great news for, for, for Mick for today. And we wanted to dedicate this show to him. Yeah, absolutely. I've played with uh, Mick quite a few times over the years. Uh, always a very generous person and a generous gamer. I remember quite a few games where I had to double check with him to make sure he was alright and into what it was that I was running and so forth. Uh, and he was perfectly happy. In fact, he was most happy when he was showcasing other people's talents or other people's characters. So that's the kind of personality he was. That he wanted other people to have a good time and, and put a lot of his effort into making sure that everybody else around the table was enjoying themselves and, and getting the support that they wanted. So I think that's reflected certainly in, in the way he lived his life, the way I've talked to other people about it, certainly those closest to him. Uh, they certainly view him as a man of generous spirit so uh, a real shame and uh, yeah this show's for you hey everybody welcome back it's what would the smart party do so uh, it's been a couple of weeks since we've spoken so uh, it's good to have Gaz on the line how you doing mate yeah I'm alright Baz yeah good Created a little gaming forum recently, which was nice, just to Did get you? a few people uh, interested. Yeah, all by accident. It's because you shouted about it one night. <laughs> Is this going in the in the news section that we don't have? <laughs> let's let's do a roundup. Did it, did it, did it, did it, did news. <laughs> so many guests and stuff on all the rest of it. Yeah, it's a funny one, isn't it? We've we've done quite a bit over the last six months, I think, in terms of creating a Facebook page, uh, and we've got a G plus chat thing that's now rebranded as Smart Party, and we've got you know Twitter's quite active, and we've got a Smart Zine out as well, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we have actually. So, I mean, thanks to the to the glorious legion of patrons um, who are generous enough to dip into their wallet and every month give us uh, a couple of quid, they've managed to fund the first of what will hopefully be very many smart projects coming your way. Um, and now, obviously, our Patreon's got it first, and it's been ever so well received, so thank you guys for that. It's now on release to the general public, so we've put together a, a fanzine kind of old styly, a lovely little thing that you can print out and keep, uh, but it's now available to you as a PDF through drive through uh, We've pitched it at three bucks, American dollars, which I think the current conversion rate means it's about £2.10 or something, and you can't even get a mochaccino for that these days. But what you can get is a smart zine through drive through into your hard drive, and um, it's, it's better than we are on the podcast because it's more considered and we edited it. Which is what we don't do for this. <laughs> so, if you like our banter, but you want it spelt right, grab yourself a copy of Smart Zine <laughs> One. You'll be glad you did. Yeah, quite right. In fact, you might as well back us on Patreon. If we stick a dollar a month down, we'll send you the PDF, and then you know you can be one of our loyal Legion of followers as well. Oh, I've re- not really thought the maths through on this at all. Then have I? From a financial well, not perspective, not really. Does now, but don't worry about it. As long as we get our words out there and people receive the benefit of our wisdom. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I'm, I'm I'm working on a scenario or two as well. Um, not, not everything I'll go out to the public. We'll keep something just for our patrons as well. But um, yeah, it's good to get some words out there and show that people are sure they're appreciative of it as well. So let's keep churning stuff out for the masses. 
Yeah, because we've actually charged through our our stretch goal as well. So once we've got to a certain amount, which we've now passed, our promise was to get some scenarios out there. So you're beavering away at the grim and gritty end of the spectrum. Um, I'm doing the kind of bubblegum pop stuff at the other end. We'll put them together. And I think the plan is that we're going to go out to our Patreons and we're going to elicit their their help with NPCs and plots and stuff like that. Because, you know, why not? If you can't be nice to your friends, who can you be nice to? So we would love to have more Patreons. It is not too late if you want to get involved, if you want to be um, a star in one of our scenarios or both of them. That's a great way to do it because otherwise we'll have to think up our own names. And as everybody knows, that is the hardest thing to do in RPGs. Yeah, quite right. So what else have you been up to, Baz? Anything good? Have you played any games recently? I've played a few, but I'd like to give you up a chance oh, first. Talk about a leading question. The only reason you're asking me if I've been playing <laughs> any games recently is because you know damn well that you've been playing cool games and I have not. So let's just cut, cut out the pretense uh-huh. and go straight to your amazing day out in Birmingham. Go on. Yeah, so... I was fortunate enough to get to Spaghetti Conjunction. Were you? I was. Um, yeah, it was It was an on-the-day thing. I had to kind of just like find out if I woke up in time and got there, but I, I managed it. Um, it's run by Sam and Billy, James Mullen, and Pookie, uh, and it's like the model for Milton Keynes as well in terms of their concrete car. So they just get a, a gaming space, basically. Uh, you turn up, you pay your £3, or whatever the massive entrance fee is, uh, and people bring some games, and you play games for a day. There's two slots... And it's all pretty chilled out and nice. It's in a games cafe, so they, they have table service, bringing you paninis or milkshakes or whatever else you want. And all pretty good, actually. There's a good variety of games. We got to meet, um, or I got to meet, Dirt the Dice and Blythe and Co. from the Grognard Files and various other people from the UK scene. They're all there. So I played some Numenera with Blythe, which is good. A really interesting thing was one of the guys around the table, um, we, we didn't quite catch it at first. He was saying he was new to it and didn't quite know what he was doing. And we're trying to help him thinking he'd not done Numenera before. And what he meant was he's not done role-playing before. Wow. So that was his very first role-playing game. So <laughs> he, he did quite well, okay. bless him. He was tired by the end of it and didn't stop for the second session. But I think that was just, he's used to playing uh, more short-form games and not something that lasts, you know, a whole day. <laughs> um, but that was cool. Uh, and then I also got to play uh, with D- Dirk himself, some Judge Dread from the, the classic GW era. So the the game that's literally older than half the people that are in the room. But yeah, proper, like all the little figures and minis and we had like fatties and more pads going off the freeway with drug labs in them and all kinds of stuff from the comics back in the day. But really, really good scenario by the Daily Dwarf. I think he goes by on the internet. He'd written that up for us. Uh, and Dirk himself was a, I called him a cabaret style GM, which I'm not sure he knew how to take that. But by that I meant that he put on a bit of a show, had some stuff he could read out, some poetry and bits and pieces like that, You know, good characterizations, really evocative in his descriptions and what he was talking about. So that was all really good. Good to meet the guys and, and good to get some games with them. So there'll be another one of those concrete car- uh, sorry, not concrete cow-like things, Spaghetti Conjunction, in Birmingham, I think around September, October time. So keep your eyes out for that and uh, get along if you can because the guys want some support. Cool. So you could show up for your first ever role playing experience with a game from the eighties. That's that's bonkers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, um, speaking of old times, they don't feel like old times to me. You know, we hear like like nineteen seventy. In my head, that was like thirty years ago, and it's not. It's like mm. closer to fifty. So like the eighties. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, I know, man. I know, right? And it's like apparently Snoop Dogg had What's My Name in the charts 30 years ago or something like that. 30 years, which is just 
mental. That's not right. It can't That's be, can it? <laughs> Twenty then. The nineties was Even... last decade as well, wasn't it? That's how I remember things. Well, this is the point. So we've had people approach us via the various mediums available to you on the internet. We're not hard to find, by the way. Facebook, Twitter, Pigeon Post, uh, Google Plus, a forum. We're there. We've had questions come in, and people have, have wanted to find out about the dim, distant, dark days of the nineties, which I can't believe are that long ago. Because, like, wasn't it like? Just a couple of years ago, we had the Millennium Bug, I think, and it all worked out okay. What What have I been doing? So, because I'm convinced the '90s was last year. So, <laughs> so apparently, it's time for a retrospective of something that I'm pretty sure was only happening a week ago. But maybe these are the times we yeah. live in. Man. Yeah. Well, we've at least we've not got back to the '80s. We're trying to keep it reasonably current, you know, keeping it bleeding edge. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking to you about the time when Nirvana were quite a big deal. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go back to the 90s. I mean, the Judge Dredd game I played, I think, was from the 80s even, or possibly before that. Yeah. But, um, yeah, let's be a little bit more up to date and, and be down with the kids and start with 1990 and talk about some games from them, or at least one. I think that the, the sort of seminal, uh, seminal? seminal start was uh, Torg, which came out in 1990. Yeah. N- now, that was a bonkers game. Yeah, because it seemed like they got all the genres they could think of and stuck them in one place and mixed them up a little bit. So you had a cyber papacy, which was you know cyberpunk mixed with the Spanish Inquisition to a degree, uh, and you had an Egyptian kind of world, and it did really feel like someone thought, "Why are there all these different backgrounds and worlds out there? I want to role play an arm. So what I'll do is stick them all in the same place, and then that'll be great." Yeah, mental. Yeah, and it and it kind of, I think that was really early, wasn't it? Did you say it was nineteen ninety itself that came out? So, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I think unknowingly that kind of set the tone for a lot of the stuff that would go through that decade of gaming, which I, I still regard as a very fine decade of gaming. But it was not without its flaws. Mm. And, and one of the things that the nineties really loved to do, if you were into RPGs, was chuck everything into the blender, and um, and then not tell you what was going to come out of that blender unless you wanted to buy a few books that went with it. So. There was an awful lot of splat books in the 90s. And Torg, I think if you wanted to have everything that Torg released, and this is a game that many people won't know what on earth we're we're talking about because it doesn't really trip mm. off the tongue, does it? Torg. I originally thought it stood for something. It was an acronym, but I could never figure out what it was. But it's not. It's just a, it's just a weird word. And <laughs> But if you had it on your shelves, you would have about three or four feet of book spines looking back at you. And that's no <laughs> word of a lie. And... If I remember rightly, you would report in the outcomes of your games back to the company who made it, West End Games, I think it was, That's and right, you yeah. would you would send in postcards so that they could um, they could change the background a little bit depending on how your scenarios were going with your home group, and then update you via the lightning fast medium of publishing. So <laughs> you would <laughs> talk about latency. You, you, you would buy Torg read the 50, 100 books that came with it, get a gaming group together instantly, and um, six months later, when you finish the scenario, you would write it down on a bit of paper, put it in a red box, it would get to the other side of the world, and then they would go about getting a freelancer to incorporate that into a book you wouldn't see for another year. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good payoff when you get it the next year, isn't it? When you see the little bit of impact that you've had. Certainly is. Oh, Do you know what? Um, one of the original members of the Smart Party, boy band Simon. Hello, Simon. I know you're listening out there in Bermuda. Um, so one of Simon's big claims to fame was that he got a letter printed in White Dwarf. And I remember to this very day, he was bemoaning the lack of coverage of Torg. 
<laughs> why why he chose that to moan about I do not know but even White Dwarf was not quick enough to keep up with the machinations of Torg back in the 90s and um, I don't think it ever got a mention in White Dwarf and because we're British if it wasn't in White Dwarf it kind of didn't happen didn't really did it yeah exactly yeah yeah it had a couple of unique mechanics um, the one I'm just remembering now is that a, a drama deck which was a deck of cards that you yeah dutifully assembled from your box set that you got when you bought Tog. That had sort of advantages and disadvantages and things like that. And the players all had some, and the GM got all the rest in a big stack in front of him. And the first thing that happened when a start fight it was... Uh, not a fight started, rather. It wasn't um, roll initiative. It was flip over a card to see how that influences the combat mm-hmm. that had to happen. So it introduced that element of um, uh, the unknown or something, something different happening straight away when a fight breaks out, which, which in and of itself, I think it's a really neat idea and seems to have... Not that I know of, anyway, been replicated anywhere else. Nobody starts a combat or something in a role playing game, and the first thing you do is introduce another random element to see what's happening. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which, you know, if you think about it, when uh, lots of great war tacticians and stuff got about no plan surviving contact with the enemy and all that, that's the first thing that happens when a fight breaks out, yeah. is it all goes to shit straight away. So that's a nice little modelling of that that seems to have just popped up there and nowhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, do you know what? That they were, it was like that. It had all kinds of bells and whistles, and I like bells and whistles in games. Actually, if I'm being honest, mm. I think I think Talk was a little bit ahead of its time in a way because if it had Kickstarter and rich gamers around, we'd be lapping up all kinds of strange new card decks, strange little dice, and and that extended to to the setting as well. Because um, well, the central conceit of Talk, right, is it's kind of like a multi-dimensional thing, a bit like you would find in a modern game, maybe something like the Strange would be the closest thing to it but the yeah, individual maybe. settings within Torg were actually really cool they were bonkers but cool um mm. out of the i think four or five maybe six that you got in the base set i think my favorite one was the cyber papacy which mm. was ostensibly france uh, but it was a repressive medieval theocracy um yeah. and cyberpunk <laughs> obviously so <laughs> it was it was like they'd done that that old that old meme of Grab two random <laughs> GURPS books and weld them together and you've got yourself a cool setting. Yeah. And they did that about eight <laughs> times and said, there's your campaign world. What's not to love? Yeah. They had a gothic horror world set in Indonesia and stuff like this. And yeah. I'd, I'd, yeah. And you could hop between all these different... Like, these were like literally in the same place as well. You could like hop between all of them. Mm-hmm. There were like different continents in the virtual map of the universe or other. So the, the characters were bonkers as well, weren't they? Because they all come from a different place. Of course they do. Yeah. Dinosaur riding cowboy with a Nippon Tech, you know, Bio Ninja or something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely bizarre. But, yeah. uh, you know, it seemed to work. It was good fun at the time, anyway, I remember. Yeah, yeah. Never got a huge amount of play. Uh, it's been kickstarted again fairly recently. And mm. I tell you what, if you like Savage Worlds, which lots of people do, have a look at Torg. I think it's its spiritual predecessor or ancestor in some ways, because there's yeah. some of that DNA has sort of floated along um, and gone into. Games like Numenera, perhaps, and certainly The Strange or anything that's a bit multi-dimensional. And, you know, we've often talked about, wouldn't it be cool if we could play Time Splitters? Well, you know, Torg had all of that and more um, and, and mm. just wedged everything in. And, and and there was certainly an awful lot of paper generated for Torg. And, and I think it started something in the 90s that, that ran through the whole decade of just, here's a crazy game that is about as far away from Dungeons & Dragons as you can get. And there's enough people who want to do it to generate... A, what you would call now an incredible amount of support for a game that probably no one is currently playing. I feel fairly safe in saying that. 
Mm. <laughs> Please do call in and tell us if you've got a talk group going on. <laughs> Maybe you're waiting for your postcard to come back before you can take your next move. It, it does feel like it's just that little bit too far distant, a bit too niche for people to have picked up. There's lots of games recently that got kickstarted again and, mm-hmm. and got overwhelmingly supported and stuff like that. I feel like it's just one of those that's a little bit out of reach for it. Like the common consciousness, probably yeah. just a little bit too far back or too weird to pick things up. But yeah, the nineties definitely were a time when people had sort of decided played D and D for a long time. Now if we need to explore the rest of the possibilities because move it forward to nineteen ninety one, and there's two particular games there that I want to point out. One's Amber Dice Role Playing, and the other's Vampire the Masquerade. Which okay. again, they're like if if you could kind of say like what's not D and D. Those two probably sum up two things that are very not D&D. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Amber was based on the Roger Zelansky novels, which we all read at university as well. Um, thanks, Boy Bad Simon. I think you got me into those. Really interesting, but that, the whole diceless concept as well, given that up until that point, role played a really bit about, like we said, Torg had all these different bits of paper and decks as well as your dice and stuff. And most of the games before that had some dice and role playing comes from wargaming as its DNA. So to move to something that just didn't have any dice and it was up to you as a table to decide what happened in your story that was quite an odd thing to happen I mm. thought and yeah. then weirdly you've got Vampire which is ostensibly about stories and your angst of and your existential crisis of being a vampire and having to feed on humans and still being in touch with humanity uh, bolted to something called the storyteller or storytelling system, can't remember which round it was at the start uh, which did nothing to sort of support that, that was all about how much damage you take for being electrocuted and nothing to do about supporting the political drama and the existential angst that was supposed to come of being a vampire. Mm. So two games that had wildly different systems and neither one really did anything much to support the game they said they were going to do, what the game was about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got a theory about Amber and Vampire. Brace yourself, okay? So the analogy is going to be the 90s, right? You remember Blur versus Oasis because Britpop was a thing, right? Blur and Oasis are two very different bands, which is why they were kind of against each other in this kind of tribal war. I always thought they had each other's names. I always thought that Oasis would be better off being called Blur. It seems to suit their music. And and the word Oasis would have suited Blur's music a bit better. So, yeah, yeah and that was always the feeling I had. So it's like Amber, you play these impossibly powerful immortals who can almost do anything, and it's all about you know one-upmanship and the rest of it, would have been better supported by having the storytelling system with massive pools of D10s where you could like uh, buy advantages and disadvantages and go around like not sucking the blood out of each other but basically doing over your mates and mm. um, they're a perfectly good rule system for, for Amber which was otherwise quite hard to do with the diceless thing and Vampire was way 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 better in its live action role playing format where nobody had to roll dice ever because it was actually about politicking and all the rest of it mm. so you know they, they, were, they were trying to come at come at something similar which is let's tell some stories instead of just kill stuff and take its treasure but mm. they handled it in two very different ways and one of them was massively successful and one of them less so and by massively successful Vampire went on to spawn an awful lot of things and it became the number one role playing game in the world it beat D&D for periods of the 90s which is mm. amazing when you think about it and was it because of the pools of D10s I don't know. I don't know. I think don't I just think it was. No, maybe not. But was it because of the storytelling either? I don't know. 
The Brit. I think it was the whole vampires thing. It was it was a playing, uh, you know, a vampire. And if you think about Spawn since with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, or the whole genre of vampire diaries and stuff like that's come later. I think just back in the day, that at uh, that sort of time, playing the monster, because up until that point, everybody plays the goody beating up the orcs or the liches or whatever else. So to be the monster for a change, uh, and be this all powerful being almost compared to humanity, and that that touched people in a certain way like a, a, you know it was actually being something completely different than you've been before mm. I think um, and that's sort of like I mean these days it's been more kind of zombies that's been preeminent but certainly if you go back a, a decade or two vampires were a big thing and there was you know countless Dracula remakes and there's been countless TV series and novels and young adult novels and all kinds of stuff Twilight series and all that kind of stuff so the whole vampire thing I think was very seductive amusingly um, and that drew people in. Yeah, I never got it. I'll be honest with you. In both of those games, actually, I never really took to Amber. I didn't read the books. I didn't really understand it. And with the vampires thing, I did. I played a couple of games. You ran some Dark Ages versions of vampire that I've been in, and we've all had a bit of a go at it. But I found you couldn't really go around being a vampire. You could be a vampire of a certain type. So it was um, mm. it, very much the world of darkness quickly became its thing, and the vampires were a part of that. Uh, but they weren't like Dracula, the vampires that b- before Vampire came out. I think everybody had an idea of what a vampire was, and it was a bit more like Dracula or Count Dracula or something like that. And I imagined in Vampire you would be running around and the stories would be about or the adventures would be about sucking people's blood and maybe having people trying to hunt you down and being a vampire. But that that swiftly, if that was ever the case, that swiftly became not the game at all, didn't it? Mm. Yeah, it's all about political machinations and that kind of stuff, and and being in society and be, and that or that kind of element. But it's a weird thing for most of the White Wolf games; they all follow the same sort of imprint, mm. and that was to suggest that you're a party of adventurers, for want of a better phrase, a group, a coterie, whatever they called it in the particular game it was. Uh, but the, the sort of character classes in inverted commas, or the the sort of like the different archetype you could be, they were all wildly different, and quite often um, didn't fit together on a Venn diagram. But you've got these bunch of people together who are all supposed to, around the table you play, are all supposed to act together in some way. But your characters are defined by the system in such a way that they don't get on. Mm. Probably Werewolf's a better example, I can remember that more clearly. But there's a faction there that hate humans, and another faction that wants to support you know, general life and all the rest of it. And generally the werewolves don't like the cities and all that kind of stuff and prefer nature. And there's glasswalkers who just only live in the city. And then there's a, another sect of werewolves that hate all men. And all this mm. kind of stuff, and it's like you, Vampire was similar. It's got its own different factions and things like that. But it was weird to have a game that set out, I think, trying to give you a different flavor of vampire to play, or something that, you know, something different to do in your own niche. But inherently in the game, building in something that means that players aren't going to get on as well as they normally do because mm. you've set up, baked into the setting of the system, these characters that won't get on together. Yeah, which. Uh, in a sort of political machination game it might be alright if you had something to support that like if you used Hot War with agendas and you could try and play off each other but setting up as a traditional role playing game and then deliberately making people be just have completely different interests even if they weren't hostile to each other was a really odd thing to try and get your head, your head around mm. so quite often adventures came down to the prince of the city would tell you to do something and that's the only way you got the characters to behave with each other because someone higher up had told them they had to do it which is not a very uh, great motivation for a lot of people. They're not, you know, if you've got a, a game master character telling everybody what to do, that's not a strong incentive for players to get behind it. To be honest, 
Yeah, and who'd have thought you would be immortal with basically superpowers but a massive lack of agency? Um, (laughs) Because I think what actually happened, I know what actually happened, is that crossovers became the thing. So over the course of the 90s, all of the major World of Darkness uh, factions were covered with their own game, literally their own game. So Vampire, then Werewolf, then Mage, then Changeling, then Wraith, and loads of others along the way. But each of those was five separate games, which was, which was a peculiar decision, because everybody, and I really mean everybody, wanted to cross all of those things over, because that was how you would do it. You couldn't really have a party of vampires, but you could certainly have a vampire and a werewolf and a mage, and because you know you weren't having sixteen players around your table like you did when it was AD and D back in the early eighties, huh. you you would be there'd be a few of you a bottle of cider a graveyard nearby and a few candles and you'd be playing world of darkness and more often than not you would want that crossover thing which was never officially supported as far as i can tell because they all had their own games with a a single engine underneath it but enough variability that instead of arguing about what happens with fireballs when you cast them underwater it was what happens when a mage wants to try and turn a vampire into a deck chair and yeah. these these conversations were lengthy and about as dull as they sound, but they went on for a decade. <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah, it's funny. Well, I, I think the other thing that I found slightly irritating, you've mentioned Dark Ages, which I really liked. I think mm. that suited the vampire game better because they, then it can be a little bit more dracula. They can be like villages with pitchforks and burning brands coming to burn your house down. Um, and there's, you've got you've not got the same safety you've got you know you might actually get caught out in the sunshine at some point because traveling by you know traveling in the day involves you hiring some villagers and hoping they don't open the coffin at some point mm-hmm. to see what's in it in case there's something worth robbing and there's a lot more danger to that and, and just, just the level of technology makes everything a lot more interesting mm. but what the, even then that what they said it was about and what you got was totally different so constantinople by night i think was one of the first source books which was set in constantinople probably enough um and it gone about the youngest vampire there being 70 or 80 years old and he was like the new guy and used to get the piss taken out of everybody else and get a good slapping off the other vampires and then instep your npcs who were like five or ten years old and you're like well what, what how are rpcs going to interact with this and there's this supposed to be this big uh, political landscape that's mapped out before you and the first adventure they brought out is you're like you basically go on a dungeon bash to go and get this <laughs> blood off an old vampire yeah and it was you know, quite often the stuff they brought out was absolutely nothing to do with what they said their game was about, and it was just baffling yeah. that they come up with all this gem advice and how you bring people together and create story, mood, and theme, and then you go on a dungeon bash. It just doesn't make any sense. No. So I think it was always a conflicted game, and there was what people said it was about or what people said they wanted to play about it, and then it very quickly turned into something else, and people talking about how their vampire could shoot lightning bolts out of his ass all of a sudden, and mm. not about anything that the game purported to be about really what what was your favorite one then did you you still like the vampire but that particular blend of it or were you ever into the the hairy guys or the the fairies or the ghosts yeah i liked all the alt settings they did to be honest so i like the dark ages for Mm. reasons i've already mentioned um and the werewolf one they did a wild west one that had a bullet hole all the way through the book Mm. that i bought at jenko one year when white wolf used to come over to the uk for that sort of thing and do a big trade stand and again, that made sense because it was all about the sort of shape-shifting. If you imagine the Native American uh, culture has a bit of that in it, and there's a bit 
with like rail tracks being laid down on the land with kind of like bonding Gaia down or nailing Gaia down with these iron tracks and nails and stuff and there's a kind of mythical element to it that made a lot more sense and it became because of it it was a bit wild west there is a lot of nature it made more sense to have werewolves running around because you've got that that's why werewolves have come to this new discovered country because it's not been taken over by technology so that blended all a lot better as well mm. and the, the May stuff with the Sorcerer's Crusade in sort of a time when uh, science was seen as sorcery and that, that kind of argument was going on as well I think all those settings actually had a lot more interesting gameable stuff you could do and made more sense than trying to do it in the modern day yeah I, I the opposite experience with Mage Mage was my favourite one and it literally blew my mind reading Mage made me have to close it close the book occasionally look at the ceiling and go huh and then think about it for 10 minutes and then go back and open up the book again it, it was it was literally mind expanding stuff and, and, I, and I remember digging into the bibliography in it and going off and reading more stuff and I've never really been into playing wizards or anything else like that, like that in games. That's not my thing at all. Um, but Mage was about much, much bigger stuff than about casting fireballs. It was about who gets to own reality. What does reality even mean? Uh, and if you know, if you're at university and uh, you've had too many ciders, that is exactly the kind of question you want to bother yourself with at three in the morning. So that big line of purple books really did it for me. And when they announced Sorcerer's Crusade, I thought, oh, really cool because. Um, one of the really cool things about uh, about the world of darkness is it goes way, way, way back and has links to Ars Magica, and uh, which is a game about wizards in medieval times. And Mage was the bridge that brought you all the way into the future with that. So Tremere was a tradition of mages and became a clan of vampires. And there's all kinds of really cool meta plot things which the 90s mm. loved. And I thought Sorcerer's Crusade was going to be better than it was. I thought Sorcerer's Crusade was going to be incredible mind-expanding stuff about the future of reality plus musketeers. But actually, I don't think I finished reading the book. I don't think it was written very well. And for me, that was a disappointment because I loved the writing in Mage. I found it game fiction, which for me stood up as just fiction. It was really, really good. Um, so I, I don't don't recall ever playing Sorcerer's Crusade, but I'm glad it was a thing. and mm. And they really did push settings and even those secondary settings like you say about dark ages that was a complete game as well wasn't it they gave you all the rules for that again yeah so mm-hmm. every anyone who was into world of darkness had had the rules nine or ten times over but with a twist in each one just enough of a twist to mean that you didn't have a central system <laughs> which is clever yeah. marketing to be fair when they did bring out new world of darkness a few years ago they did have a, a core system and they yeah. laid everything up on books on top but yeah but back in the day it was proper like rebuy the same system i don't know how many times hmm. um but yeah with mage I, I did like it as a read my problem with it was that i couldn't work out how on earth i was going to have a game of it oh yeah it's impossible to play welcome to the 90s mate loads of great games you can't play <laughs> <laughs> but talking about mind-bending stuff let's let's move forward another year to 92 yes. uh, there's a couple of things that came out there uh, one worked a lot better than the other so i'm going to bring up so like you jump in any time if you've got your own games otherwise I'll <laughs> no 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 no, you're in charge of the 90s, mate. I'm far more modern than that, as you know. <laughs> the two I want to mention, one's Nephilim, which was uh, where you built characters that had several past lives, which is an interesting aspect. Again, mm-hmm. though, the game, I didn't know what the hell you did. Uh, and the other one is Over the Edge, uh, which is set on the fictional world of Alamara, where it's got another kind of, not tour system, but it's got that kind of, everything in the kitchen sink thrown in like any bonkers idea you can think of and the writers probably had LSD at some point shoved all on one island and said this is all the stuff going on but I thought that 
even though that was an even more out there idea than Nephilim, Over the Edge worked a lot better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over the Edge is is a, a, an all time classic. It's not a game that absolutely defines the nineties for me, but it's a it's a really really good snapshot of those times that pre millennial type of thing going on. It's got some X Files. It's kind of like Torg, but without the four color elements. And I mean that as a compliment because it had absolutely everything in it, but it wasn't how it wasn't Gonzo. I don't know because it looks like mm. a list of ingredients that should should result in comedy games. But this was comedy as directed by David Lynch, um, yes. and it, it had yeah, a yeah. really really cool tone that that married up with stuff like Twin Peaks, which of course was really big in the culture at the time. I loved Over the Edge. Really simple system, really interesting rule book, which is massively slim even in its first edition ways you will see all of this if you pick up 13th age these days which is by the same author plus others you will see it in the way that the setting is presented tiny yeah. little snapshots of setting which is enough to make you think cool i wonder what's next don't bother looking in the book it isn't there all it is is triggers for your imagination <laughs> but over the edge yeah. was full of these little triggers it was like looking at another games master's notebook that they diligently filled out but left you loads of stuff to do um, impossible not to be inspired by it and it was a question of like how quickly can I get a game together because I've got I've got 4,000 things that are going to happen as soon as anybody sits down Nephilim tried mm. the same thing and I think you rightly point out mate you sat down for Nephilim and there was 4,000 reasons you couldn't get anything started because of all the it, it, <laughs> it was the opposite in playability yeah yeah quite I even read like the, the Pro Hour GM's guide and a how to guide and stuff like that. I read all wow. that. I still don't know how to run again. And I, I can't I haven't found anybody else who had a Nephilim campaign. I know quite a few people who've who quite liked the idea and, you know, tried to run it, but like nobody I know found it easy, certainly. And most nah. people found it actually an effort to try and think of things to do. Mm. And get again, getting players inspired in playing it was just like you can you can't even explain it to yourself, let alone six other people. You know, it, yeah. it, it just didn't work. It had a really interesting concept. The good thing it did, which I, I really appreciated, was the the past lives thing. Mm. So you, you'd add in extra experience points and skills and things from various of your lives. So you could be a Babylonian priestess uh, and a knight of Charlemagne's uh, reign and that kind of stuff, and a, maybe a Victorian surgeon or something. But so you'd have like a really interesting character with a whole bunch of different skills and stuff, which you think this is amazing, but then not quite know at the end of it what you do. Mm. Um, mm. But that, you know, the the idea of having different past lives and different things in your arsenal, so you could do all kinds of crazy stuff, was great. It's just the rest of it. I think they ran out of the ideas of what you're supposed to do after that. They just thought this is a cool idea and then left it. Yeah, it was. Um, it was a decade where there was an awful lot of games about the occult. Um, or mm. the supernatural at least and, and most games went a bit Hollywood with it to make it playable but Nephilim was you know I think uh, one of its one of its selling points was that it tried to be as authentic as it could to real occultism if there is even such a thing but you know if, if that's the case and I think people who are into the occult will probably admit to this as well that is an awful lot of very boring time staring at candles and trying to summon demons <laughs> that just doesn't work and that's unfortunately a little bit what the game was like too too realistic when it was talking about bonkers things yeah yeah I think so I think so okay well we'll leave that decade and move on I'm conscious of time we may have spent too much time talking about Vampire 93 we're going to skip over as well Baz that was when Earth Dawn came out officially oh yeah so there's nothing actually happened in 93 how bizarre just Earth Dawn uh, and I think like we've actually had one of our loyal listeners has, has phoned in 
where Telex Denon said we should do a whole episode on Earth Dawn. So maybe we shouldn't talk too much more about that now. Apart from I'm <laughs> going to run it at Seven Hills in March. So if you're at that convention, get your, your elbows and sharp pencil ready because uh, gaming will open. You get a chance to play the classic Earth Dawn with, uh, with me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but let's move. move up. We'll, what we'll do is we'll we'll fax him back about Earthdawn. <laughs> and of course, the other thing I'm doing is skipping over the releases of you know, Wraith, Werewolf, Mage, all these other things that are coming out. Just assume the '90s is filled with White Wolf games. Can't move for it. Yep. We'll talk about other stuff. So, I think the key one for '94 is one that you like quite a lot. I mean, I don't mind it at all, but um, I think it's more of a favorite yours. Castle Falkenstein. Oh, Castle Falkenstein. Now you're talking. Now, uh, do you know, this is worth a show on its own, except it would just be me talking and you going, oh, really? That sounds nice. So <laughs> it's the wrong one for uh, for us as a duo to tackle. We should maybe get a guest on. Castle Falkenstein was brilliant um, and remains brilliant and is incredibly a game that, as far as I'm aware, is not on Kickstarter trying to get another edition done in full colour, which is bonkers because Castle Falkenstein has so much going for it. Really, really out there as far as melding narrative and mechanics into a game by separating them out into physically two halves in the same book, one in colour, one in black and white. Really out there as regards the setting that it was put into, which was the setting of Victorian literature, sci-fi fantasy literature, but back in the days when it was all Jules Verne and Sherlock Holmes and all those. And then having those characters be real in the setting. And then having you, almost if you wanted to, play yourself. You could be a time traveller because that was a cool thing to do. Your character sheet was a bookmark that went into your journal, so it it made that part of the game that you would write in your fancy leather book all the things that happened to you, and every every session would be a chapter, and every chapter heading would say in which we faced off against Rasputin on the steam train in Prague, and full of imagination, full of steam, steampunk before there was such a thing. In, in a beautiful book which to this day has some of the best artwork in it ever, fully rendered watercolours that just looked luscious and not many people played it I think because you had to use playing cards and mm-hmm. we get so snobbish about our polyhedrals that that people didn't want to get their cards out. I think these days, I mean playing cards are beautiful now, they used to be rubbish back then, you played like one hand of whist with your granny and they would all fall apart wouldn't they? Yeah. So you could never find a, a deck of cards, but now we're like you know cards by bicycle and all the rest of it. They're beautiful objects to have, and and you know and what a lovely game to sit down and play with a very nice bottle of port, and mm. you'd, you'd put on a shirt to play it. A, a really nice a, a game for gentlemen and women of every stripe, uh, and I loved Castle Falkenstein, and and it, of course it wasn't without its issues, but it, I thought it was a beautiful game that really really went out there with some of its ideas which, again, you'll see in 2018 in other games now. Castle Falkenstein got there first. And and quite why there isn't a massive clamour for people to get that back on the shelves, I don't know. Maybe there is, and I haven't seen it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's been, like, Space 1889 and stuff that's, like, not the same, but of that kind of ilk. Yeah, similar. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that that's about revivals of Savage Worlds and that sort of stuff. And, you know, even um, John Carter of Mars and things like that, like, they've all been rebooted in various ways mm. um, so why Falkenstein is not unless it get a bit like Torg it's one of those niche games that didn't have the kind of like weight of numbers behind it something like that maybe that's something to do with it that's why it's not got the 
I don't know. Maybe someone will listen to this forecast, uh, forecast podcast, and decide it's a great, a great thing to do. The opposite of a forecast, in fact. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a forecast of the nineties of what's going to happen. That's. I, I think it's the name. I think people think it's going to be about Castle Wolfenstein. Genuinely, because it's got because <laughs> the name doesn't tell you what you do. It sounds a bit like Frankenstein, and it's nothing really to do with Frankenstein. It's no. it's it's got a terrible name, uh, it, or, but not as bad as Torg. But it's still a, it doesn't actually tell you what's going on, and that could yeah. be enough. And I think there's um there is a little bit of barrier. You've mentioned gentlemen and gentlewomen, uh, in terms of who play it. So maybe that's a barrier to some people. There's a book that was been quite hard to get hold of. I managed to get one a couple of years ago, thankfully, uh, called Commune Four, which is basically uh, about the play society and manners and the sort of things that you should and shouldn't get up to in that kind of world so if you marry that with Falkenstein then that gives you a primer for how things would happen and behave uh, and gives you a little bit of the kind of gentleman society and, and you know that mm. gives it that kind of uh, very similitude of a kind of a Victorian age and that kind of stuff so that's a, if you want to play this kind of game I definitely recommend getting that book because that gives you like a real grounding of the, the sort of background of the age almost mm-hmm even though it's not very Victorian, the game itself, in terms of there's fairies and dragons in it as well, so it's a bit you know odd. But yeah, definitely a good game. I, I enjoyed it. I found them there was a problem with the mechanics for me, um, and that's that on the face of it, it made sense. So if, I think it's like spades is to do with combat and action, and hearts is to do with uh, interactions and talking to people, charming them, and that kind of stuff. And each suit had its own thing. But what it meant that even if you held onto your hand of four cards, you kept a couple of spares in there for the big fight you're going to have. Mm-hmm. Once you dueled with someone for a couple of rounds, you'd spent your spades, got some new cards, and you had no spares anymore, and you couldn't do anything physical because you were out of physical cards. And there's only one in four in the deck, and you spent two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just fell down a little bit. It felt good for that sort of game and the, the conceit of it. Having playing cards like you're playing bridge at the club made sense that was a good mechanic I just don't yeah. think it quite worked it probably needs a little bit of looking at if, we, if people went back to it now I guess definitely the mechanics weren't brilliant but that's never held back RuneQuest yeah that's true <laughs> RuneQuest mechanics were better though to be fair <laughs> moving swiftly on anyway 95 I'm just going to consign to the bin what a lot of rubbish there was Changeling the Dreaming because we have to have a White Wolf game don't we but of course the rest are not a lot else there I don't think that we're interested in um, 96 Fading Suns how about that missed it yeah it, it, it was kind of like I, I was hoping it was going to be um, Earth Down in Space but it wasn't quite that it was um, I mean it was, it was pictures of White Wolf style kind of things so there's lots of different factions and it was a bit space opera I don't know it was going to come for revival with uh, Red Brick who were doing Earth Down at one point but it didn't quite make it to, to light again mm. um, did play a lot of it so here's uh, here's one that you might have seen, and I don't know what you think about it, but CJ Carella's Witchcraft. Yeah, yeah. And that was like that was odd for that to come out, and certainly because I don't know who CJ Carella is, but apparently Witchcraft <laughs> was <laughs> felt important enough that they had to have that in the name of it rather than just call it Witchcraft. Yeah. Whether people wouldn't buy it if you called it Witchcraft, because then it would be consigned to some kind of section of the library or something. I don't know, but so yeah, I liked it. Yeah, based on the uni system as well, which ultimately went on to spawn other things. I don't know what do you think that Witchcraft only existed because of all the vampire games and the, the other stuff that come out from White Wolf at that point? Because it seems an odd choice of something to like do, do you know what I mean? Given the dominance, as we've discussed, mm-hmm. of the White Wolf games, would you look at that market and think, what I want to do is create a, a niche thing? Witchcraft um what Witchcraft did was it, it tried to 
fulfill the need that the World of Darkness players had to do crossovers. So it enabled you to have all of the supernatural stuff in one game, which is exactly what those World of Darkness players were doing, as we discussed before. Witchcraft was a really, really, really good game um, that did it all very, very well. It did it in an elegant and simple way. The Unisystem predates an awful lot of generic system and really doesn't get a lot of love anymore for no good reason, apart from there's not really much that's on the game shelves that uses it these days. It's a perfectly serviceable system. And I mean that as a compliment, because that's what you want from a generic system, for it to be serviceable. Mm-hmm. I don't. The word serviceable isn't a slight. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a good system. Um, it went on to power all of the All Flesh Must Be Eaten books, um, Buffy, Angel, um, a whole bunch of stuff. Unisystem is is a good system. And um, and I've used it in lots of different ways, and people have used it to power their own games. But it never got the traction that stuff like GURPS or Savage Worlds did. It was just another choice. And that's the problem. Witchcraft was always another choice. And it did things better than perhaps the A game did, but it was to World of Darkness what Earthdawn was to D&D, which is it's going to yeah, be, maybe. you know, maybe better than its predecessors, but that's not enough sometimes. You know, you, you've got to have that cut through. You've got to have people willing to play. And the 90s was full of people who wanted to play Vampire. And even if Witchcraft was was objectively better, you would still have to sell it to a gaming group. And, yeah. and actually, World of Darkness players also really liked buying the books. And witchcraft yeah. was too complete. Like you know, to say to people like you can get all of that in just one book was a bit like, oh, just one book. Oh, and like imagine if Lord of the Rings was pitched as like you know it's only a hundred pages long. That puts you off, doesn't it? If you're really yeah. into something, you want there to be loads of it. <laughs> it was too good for its own good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, the other um, the problem one we probably got more to say about uh, uh, that sort of era was that's when Deadlands came out in '96 as well. Deadlands, I remember Deadlands. Yes, a complete step change, I think, in many things. It was, um, well, I mean, probably, people are probably aware of it because it got rebooted as uh, under Savage Worlds as Reloaded. Yes, um, but that's taking like bonkers, weird, um, kind of gothic stuff and putting it in the background as like a, an insidious force, uh, and then having cowboys and being able to do cowboy yep. games, and with a really wacky system. I mean, I still know people to this day who claim it's better than. Savage Worlds, and they are objectively wrong. But that's they are their wrong. Opinion. If they want to continue playing it that way, fair enough. But that was another one you've mentioned. We mentioned like playing with cards that use cards for initiative or for casting spells mm-hmm. and things like that in Deadlands. And you got poker chips, and you got little paper clips you put on the side of your carriage seat to track bullets and things like that. A really tactile game that had stuff they'd expect to see in a cowboy saloon, maybe not the paper clips, but definitely the poker chips and cards, and made them part of the game to give it that experience. Mm. I think it was really. Uh, a really bold move and it worked really nicely for Deadlands I think yeah yeah. De- Deadlands is an absolute classic and um, for us over this side of the pond as well because obviously you know we're not American so cowboys <laughs> and stuff means different things to us doesn't it it means probably if you're of our generation it means John Wayne movies on Sunday afternoons and watching them with your dad because Guns and Navarone wasn't on for once but it's that kind of thing <laughs> and it's it's Clint Eastwood and, and all the rest of it and but you know add that to that kind of real uh, add that to Gremlins, the film, where it's a little bit more day glow and garish, and and uh, <laughs> it's it's horror, but it's almost like funny horror, like a Michael Jackson video for thriller. It was it yeah. was almost it was quite camp in a way, 
but absolutely full of really, really good ideas. Enough ideas to generate more games off the back of the the ideas that were in there. Mm. Metaplot heavy, but but an easier read, I think, and and an easier sell to people than some of the other really big metaplot games like Your Fading Suns or or Blue Planet, which we may well come on to. Those sort of things where you had to put effort into those, proper effort to play it or run it. But Deadlands, you could set up and and it, it wasn't a comedy game at all, but it, it because it did, did that really clever thing, a bit like Over the Edge, where it had ridiculous things played very seriously, and mm. uh, and it could actually be quite a scary game. And yeah, loads to love about Deadlands, and in some ways not a cowboy game at all. Yeah, it just had that, that dressing to it. Um, I'm just trying to. I've just found a quote actually from uh, James Mullen, one of the guys who does the Spaghetti Conjunction thing which really struck a chord me on the, the new form I mentioned. And he said that it was um, the first time that a company, or a game certainly, seemed to appreciate the GM also, rather than treating them as some kind of hardware in which to, which you load game data to execute. I think previous <laughs> to that, quite a lot of games have felt like, you are the GM, this is all your responsibility, this is how you will run the game for your players and facilitate it fairly. Yeah. Uh, and it was a game which spoke to you, like the, the narrative style of the game as well, it wasn't like, howdy partner, this is what you might want to get up to. And it, it just talked to you like you're another human being rather than mm-hmm. being a text which you had to execute line by line as written and that kind of stuff. So it, yeah. it was a step change in how you might be a gem almost, in that yeah. it, it treated you differently as a game product. It did. And, and, it, and it literally stood out on the bookshelves for being day glow orange. Yeah, which in amongst all those vampire books, you you could see it from space. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. De- De- Deadlands was a really really big deal. I, I I love Deadlands and 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 people still do and and there's a lot of affection for it. And it, it's a game that although it, it originated in the 90s, it's it, you can still buy stuff for it and play it today. And it's mm. a living game, uh, quite rightly so. It's it's a, a survivor like a cockroach in a radioactive blasted landscape. <laughs> Yeah, it's all good stuff. However, time is our enemy as always, so we'll um, we'll skip forward a little bit as well. Oh, actually, yeah, ninety seven the next year, Legend of the Five Rings came out. Oh, which I think was a really good book. And if you're going to get into Legend of the Five Rings, uh, I know you're not really into that kind of stuff, which I'll let you talk about if you want to. But get the first edition. You can get the hardback on eBay for about a fiver, and I reckon it, that in itself is a really good product. And there's there's various splat books that came out afterwards for all the different clowns and stuff like that. Mm. But it's kind of uh, a fantastical feudal Japan type game, which I know is a barrier to some people, but I really liked it. So it had the political machinations in there. It had evil stuff in the background with oni and demons and stuff like that. Uh, I had warring clans and stuff. So if you're into your uh, ninjas, samurais uh, and all that kind of stuff, I think that was a really good product uh, and Again, it's been through several iterations. Mm. Um, so yeah, that, I think that was a good, uh, another good thing to come out. Yeah, I, I couldn't grok it at the time, just because culturally I grew up on Western fantasy novels instead of Eastern ones, and didn't get it, couldn't see it in my head, and the rest of it. But interestingly enough, last night I watched Forty Seven Ronin, starring the great <laughs> Keanu Reeves, yeah. which has many, many faults, believe you me. But if yeah. you've got an hour and a half to spare and you don't get Lo- Legend of the Five Rings watch that and you will I feel ready I could play it now it's only taken 30 years (laughs) cool stuff the other one well there's a couple more I want to mention actually there's Blue Planet which Mm -hmm. I think is really good so it's um, a science fiction game set on a blue planet funnily enough so there's been a wormhole uh, 
the Earth sent a colony ship through. They created stuff, and the idea was that more colony ships would come. What happened was some there was a big war happened. Uh, no more colony ships came through. That society kind of devolved back into into sort of natives, if you will. Uh, and then a hundred years later, I have many more. The colony ships started arriving again. So you've kind of got. Um, a world that's got some indigenous creatures which are strange and mysterious it's got the old colonists who are now like um native americans i guess were when western invaders came in and then you've got the new technology built in as well i think one of the problems with um blue planet it wasn't like nephilim like what do you do i don't i don't know what i do it was more like i don't know what i do because there's so many things going on in this world mm. and it was a complete game world like com- Compared to Traveller, which has lots of systems with sparse information, this was just one world that you got to, but had tons of information and a really diverse set of things going on in it. And uh, yeah, the system left something to be desired, to be honest, but I'll not get into that. No, best not. No, a, a game that more admired than played, I would say, and I, I think that's, that's okay. Uh, I never got to play it very much. I found it a little bit baffling. But that's true of most games I play. I think you you need to get to six sessions and then you'll never want to play anything else because it will be the best game you've ever played. But those first five or six sessions are going to be like like the start of Lord of the Rings when it's all poetry and willow trees. <laughs> it will feel a little bit like you're the guy with the suckers on you straight out of the uh, the cryo tubes yeah. on over there on the, the colony <laughs> ship and you don't know what the fuck's going on. That's right. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it requires a lot of investment, I think, and you need a different system. They went, they brought out a second edition, but that wasn't much better either. But there loads of good ideas in it. I recommend people get it if they like sort of science fiction games and want to set it in one particular place. There's definitely a lot of background there worth reading, but mm. you have to pick and choose what you use. I am going to bring us back slightly back to uh, White Wolf again, because this is when Aeon Trinity came out, or Aeon Trinity. Yeah, um, not, not World of Darkness, though. So yeah. it's, it's almost like its own thing, right? Yeah, so it's the same sort of system in that you rolled bunches of D10s and you had uh, discipline dots and that sort of stuff. But it was a kind of superheroes game, actually. It was sort of near futuristic uh, superheroes. <laughs> Just your thing, of, right? <laughs> you know, it, it was another... I think they'd learned a lot of lessons, basically, because this is like towards the end of the of the decade and they brought out something that had lots of splat books and stuff, but the Adventures for Trinity... Uh, took you on a tour of the solar system, basically. So it's um, the hum- humanity's expanded. It's got these sort of superpowers, or some people have, uh, and you're now on Mars and various other planets. Uh, and the adventures took you to uh, the moon and then Mars and then back to Earth and different continents and then out to uh, further space with some aliens and things like that. So I think they learned a lot of lessons and built the whole Splat Book series so that it gave you something new and took you on a tour of the entire world. It's a bit of an investment. You had to go through sort of six different adventure books, and by the end of it, you'd sort of seen everything there was to see around Trinity. So then you would know the world. But because it gave you in bite-sized chunks what was happening, you focused on an area, it, that journey was a lot easier. You didn't feel overwhelmed. I think it did still suffer from the White Wolf system and the fact that it's, it wasn't called Storyteller, I don't think, at the time, but there was a lot of extra add-ons and equipment you could buy and options uh, are quite clunky. So, uh, uh, you know, the system didn't help it necessarily. But I think the narrative and the, the way they designed the books, like there's a lot of fiction at the start that was held in colour, and then the back bit was black and white where you got to system. So they set it up in two different ways. And there was a lot to like about it. I still like it as a game. I think it needs a bit of an overhaul, and I think it is actually going to kickstart soon, if not already, for a yeah, new version is, of yeah. it. Yeah, I had it, um, but because you had it and were playing it more often than I did, I didn't get any more because I didn't want to spoil it. 
um, but uh, but yeah. I always admire Trinity and that uh, here's the setting through play has always struck a really good chord with me rather than here's the yes. setting through research so yeah. lovely um, I went off in a different direction I picked up its um, its predecessor Adventure which was the pulp version sort of like uh, alternate 1920s and picked up Aberrant which was about uh, wrestling <laughs> just to complete the set <laughs> so yeah archaeologists wrestling and superheroes who uh, three great tastes that don't go well together <laughs> yeah I think Adventure came out in 2001 so screw that game um, yeah Big Eye, Small Mouth, which never appealed to me, and mm. I'll skip by that one unless you nope. have something to say. But going to 98, uh, I mention it because it takes into things like the Sailor Moon role-playing game and Usagi Yojimbo. So I'm guessing in the 90s, at the end of the decade, it's when anime and stuff like that was influencing the UK, maybe? Yeah. Or the US, certainly, because there seems to be a lot of uh, games related to that, which prior to then, I don't think we'd seen a lot of. Nope. And nope, seem odd. Uh, yeah, it was a section of Forbidden Planet I didn't really spend a lot of time in, and uh, but I remember that section getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's still a really big deal. Uh, but it's 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 an entire hobby that I don't participate in, not because I don't like it. I just I wouldn't even know where to start. But um, I'm very well aware that it has its massive amount of adherence. Whether it's any cop or not, BESM, I don't know. It still gets mentioned as does, as a it? way of doing stuff. But much like Mecca, it's not really in my gaming portfolio. So no, I'm not sure. expert. I'm the same. And that also seemed the year when we got um, got some tie-ins. So there was um, a Star Trek Next Generation game. There was a Hercules and Xena game and things like that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, one that you probably have more of an opinion on is Marvel Superheroes Adventure Game. Yep, absolutely. Uh, right, remind me which one it was again. Because Marvel is one of my very favourite things outside of role-playing, the comics that is. And uh, if well, it's everyone's now because they make movies and stuff, but <laughs> but as an RPG, it would pick one of the twenty-five tries they've had at it. Which one was this one? Absolutely, yeah. This is this TSR published saga system, which contained a fate deck of ninety-six cards and some. Oh, that one. Play. Yeah, yeah, absolutely doomed. You had like um, uh, suits that represented different superheroes. So the strength suit, the color green, represented the Incredible Hulk and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unplayable. <laughs> um, I thought being a superhero uh, game, you might have an opinion, but I can tell this is one that should have sunk without a tray. Well, Carl, the amount of superhero games. I, oh man, I really want to play superhero games. I really do. But the, the problem is, everybody and his wife has had a go at doing a superhero game, and Marvel has had so many attempts at it. And uh, and everyone will have its fans, but the original one, sometimes called Phase Rip, still had so much affection at that time that this one wasn't going to work. And and, and actually, I think that the one with the stones that came out mm. was was even more doomed. And I don't so really know why yeah. it, it should work, but it, it's it. None of them ever ever have. And even I mean, I know we're talking about the nineties, but it wasn't that long ago that that the the good people over at um, uh, Margaret Vice uh, did one with Cortex, which was hugely well regarded, but it never got beyond a couple of source books before the. Marvel did something or something went wrong and it just never happened. And yeah, they lost the license, didn't they? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a bit like Star Trek, I think, until very recently. It's the one of the really big genre licenses that never really took. Some do. Star Wars, for example. Some don't. Marvel. Yeah. Oh, well, never mind. I don't like superheroes anyway. 
So, <laughs> oh, unless they're in Trinity, right? <laughs> not for uh, 98 was on non-armies as well, but we've done a couple of episodes on that, so I don't think we need to uh, go over it anymore. Well, the only thing I would say, I would mention about Unknown Armies is that we started off talking about games that were very occult and um, and that was a real flavour for a while. And I think Unknown Armies benefited from the stuff that Nephilim did, Over the Edge did, all of those other games did. And Unknown Armies is a complete package. So if mm. you're in the market for an occult game that's really gameable and really inspirational and is, has got the best of everything and absolutely no fat on it whatsoever that's the one yeah definitely and certainly if you're into um the kind of american god stuff and all that kind of thing that seems to be on tv these days that kind of feel to it or any sort of urban fantasy or that kind of stuff well worth getting so let's go let's party like it's 1999 because that's where we are now there's quite a few things in this one you've mentioned all flesh from speedton already which was a zombie game and mm-hmm. we've seen quite enough of them ever since seventh sea was uh, a big thing then when yeah. john wick's sort of game which is a, a fantastical sort of musketeer swashbuckly type game, I guess. Mm-hmm. Is that a good high level view? With pirates. With pirates as well. So it had a really good. I mean, it's been re released recently, and they've got a second edition. Uh, and everyone I know who really loves 7C and what was good about it has gone really lukewarm or cold on the new edition of 7C and says it doesn't do that stuff anymore. Mm. And they're a bit disappointed. So I think it might have lost its magic. Maybe it was of its time. Maybe. But if you like the Musketeers kind of angle and the fantastical stuff I did in with it, then, um, mm-hmm. you know, it got a lot of love. Yeah. Uh, my memories of 7C were a bit backwards. I always thought, until I checked uh, for the purposes of research, that 7C was first and Legend of the Five Rings was second. And it's not the case at all. Um, and Legend of the Five Rings was first. So it, it had its mechanics already made for yeah. Legends of the Five Rings and then continued in the 7C really tactile roll and keep this is before core mechanics were a thing by the way but they became <laughs> core mechanics roll and keep yeah. was really cool it just worked a bit like one roll engine people were trying all kinds of crazy things with D10s in the 90s weren't they but um, yeah, well, 7C yeah. was good and 7C um, has I I have no idea why this genre wasn't tackled before 1999 in gaming pirates swashbuckling musketeers I mean, it had been tackled a little bit in, in isolation here and there. Lace and Steel would be a good example for Musketeers type stuff. These were the films, if it wasn't Cowboys and World War Two movies, these were the films that I really loved. The yeah. pirate films especially, but definitely the Richard Donner Musketeers films with mm. Oliver Reed in them. Yeah. Absolutely brilliant. And if, you're, if you wanted your role-playing sessions to be like them, you really, really did. And, that, and it was possible in 7th Sea... The only thing is that 7C came laden with a massive metaplot, which if you wanted to read books, there was plenty of it, and I didn't read them because they were full of pages saying, please do not read this unless you're going to be the GM because it's full of really cool secrets. It's like, oh, well, I'm not going to get to play it though, am I? And and those people who did read it, they loved all of those secrets, apart from the really stupid (laughs) ones at the end, apparently. And, And I never really got to see them. So I, I had yeah. a, lot, a lot of time for 7C. I thought 7C was great, although it did it encouraged a kind of casual <laughs> xenophobia because it's like um, instead of character classes, you got to be like, do your favourite comedy Spaniard or be an Italian <laughs> yeah. or be an Irishman. <laughs> and, and they'd stick them all together in a party. And it's like, oh, I hate you, you, you scum-sucking Italian dog. Shut up, you German humorless twat. And it's like, oh, dear. <laughs> <sighs> but, 
Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't flat these days. It's <laughs> Not really, no. It was like L-O-L-O with cutlasses. Yeah, it, it did suffer from the the, 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 the secrets and meta plot and these story arcs you had to buy lots of books for. And I think that's one of the things that sort of like finished Deadlands off, that it started quite good, but in the end it was like these arcs where you as a GM didn't know what was going to happen either. They'd give you part of the story and said, and we'll tell you the more about that next book. It's like, well, that's all very well and good, but I want to run this now because I've just spent 20 quid on a supplement. I don't want to wait another three months to find out what happens next. I want to do it now. Mm. And you feared doing anything at that point because you knew there'd be something coming along in a bit that would tell you everything you decided was all wrong and it was something else instead. So, yeah, yeah, that was a bit of a problem for it, I guess. Another game that came out, which is one of these odd ones I don't really get to what to do, is Noblesse. Uh-huh. Which yeah. came out yeah. in like um, a really beautiful square coffee table book, and it's a book I would have on display in my house, maybe, so that people could look at it and go, "Oh, that looks interesting." Yeah, H- how you play the game and what you do in it really not sold on that at all. And I know mm. people who love the game, uh, but they can't explain to me about what a game is either. Yeah, um, seems to draw from a lot of mythologies and that sort of thing, and and have perhaps questions about what it is to be a god maybe or something I don't know I don't really get it it looked beautiful it was a it's probably notable for the fact that although a lot of games previous to that are probably a bit weren't up to scratch or the art seemed like a little bit subpar it's almost like um, some role playing artists got paid less than regular artists would for writing for a novel or something like that mm. I guess or a cover um, so it did look a really good product I just don't really think it, it delivered anything that I could get my hands on or it certainly didn't engage me anyway let's put it that way I did, I did no. look at it, but I didn't want to play it or work out how I would play it. To be honest, it's um, it's in it's in my bookshelf. I can almost see it, um, but it's it's been in that spot on the bookshelf for since the week after I bought it, and I'm waiting to have the right group and the right inclination to run it. And I'm aware that the book's worth a few quid, so mm. it's 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 much like. The game itself is like a pretty objet d'art that I'm not clever enough to understand or use properly, but I am clever enough to realise I shouldn't bin it. Yeah, yeah, maybe. So the, there's a couple of, um, like, so, so I think they're both superior games. Brave New World? Yep. Yeah, yeah, Brave New World superior game. It's a collect the set. <laughs> it was it almost literally defined meta plot. Um, it was. <laughs> I, I, do you know what? I didn't actually mind Brave New World at all. But from a marketing concept, you would buy the book, and it was not a complete game. I'm sure some people might argue with me, but it was not a complete game. So to get mm. like some of the bits you needed to play the game at all, it will be revealed in the next instalment, and wow. then which made it almost like a serial or almost like a comic book. Nice idea. Um, the sort of thing nowadays that you would have as a one-pager, as an alternate history, and you would just use your normal game to play it with, and it would right. do just fine. So it generated an awful lot of books, which I think you had to have all of them to make it work. And by the time you got to the last one, everyone had moved on to play Hunter the Reckoning or something. Yes, <laughs> yeah, quite. So you mentioned that Marvel's always had a problem, so I've got the answer for you, because in 1999 came out DC Universe role-playing game. Yeah, you're dead to me. Yeah. <laughs> and I tried to research this one, but I can't find any information about it, apart from a one Really? Uh, yeah, apparently it's the Legend system, is all I managed to find out. It's by Western Games, so I don't know whether you ever saw it or played it. but Nope. No, no I was brought up in a world where Marvel was the only comic, and DC stood for Dirty Cheaters. 
So uh, not my thing at all. I know that's a real minority opinion because everybody likes Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman these days. But no, 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 not not in my house. So. <laughs> Your children don't get to dress up as Batman, do they? <laughs> no. Right. Okay. Well, well, the weird thing with the D- the weird thing with the, the DC enemy. Supers game was that the, the whole point of DC, right, is that all the villains are just nutters. So you might as well pick up any of the occult games you've got going on because they did it better where everybody was the Joker. So to bring us bring us to a close then, I think the only other game I've got left on my list I wanted to go through uh, was Feng Shui, or Feng Shui, oh. or d- depending on whether you use a Cantonese or uh, other accent, you'll pronounce it differently. But yeah, a really, really good product, I think. This is one of the games where uh, I remember us playing it, at, or certainly I played it, I think you were there, at Loughborough, Gen Con, yeah. uh, and some guy took us through this game, and it, that opened my eyes to what gaming at conventions should be about. Mm-hmm. Uh, really solid block. Can't remember his name, unfortunately. But this was the old, the old Daedalus edition as well, which had a really beautiful blue colour with, with uh, sort of backgrounded imagery of someone doing some kind of like funky move, but with like all this uh, wash around it because it was in motion or blurry. Uh, and it was basically a game about playing Hong Kong action movies, which were becoming all the rage at the time, and all about action and doing kill stuff. I'm not just saying I hit it with my axe, but literally the game was all about describing how you do something in a cool fashion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a really great background to it as well. Like, the system was a little bit bonkers. If you wanted an agony grenade, there was literally half a page of A4 you had to read to work out how to use it, as opposed <laughs> to shooting some with a gun where you just rolled your 2d6. Um, a really yeah. funky system where one dice was positive, one was negative. So you rolled 2d6 and took one from the other. And you might end up with a result of minus four or plus three or something like that. So it took a little bit of getting your head around. In a li- not quite to the extent of uh, Over the Edge or something like that but it had a lot going around in the background and cool ideas and stuff like that I think and cool archetypes mm-hmm. for your characters so you flick through a full colour section decide that you want to be the big bruiser or the, the master spy or the old uh, ninja master or something like that so I think it was really evocative it was something you could, that grabbed you straight away yeah, massively innovative it, um, it, it, you said Hong Kong cinema was becoming all the rage I, d- I don't know, mate. For, mate, not round my way because I think this made Hong Kong cinema become the rage. <laughs> because Robin Laws obviously knew his stuff, and it, he had you know Toronto VHS stores that catered to him. They didn't get out to my leafy part of Essex at all. It was very, very difficult to get Hong Kong action cinema stuff back then. It's trivially easy now, um, but it wasn't wasn't then. But this made you want to do it, much like I'd never read any H.P. Lovecraft but I played loads of Call of Cthulhu. That's mm. what introduced me to it. Okay, so it, right, it had yeah, that yeah. effect. It's a story game before story games were a thing, but it's all about combat, which seems counterintuitive. And it's got a setting which you didn't have to read a 300-page encyclopedia to understand. It's a really, really clever game. Um, mm. Not without flaws, obviously, but the perfect convention game. And it's one that everybody could get behind. And within 10 minutes of playing, it didn't really matter where you'd come from, whether it was you know your normal world of darkness game or your AD&D session you were into it and you know it was genuinely fun and in a in a in a decade which was sometimes doing its best to not be fun from a gaming <laughs> perspective feng shui rounded off the decade with a game that it was impossible not to enjoy playing i don't know anyone who doesn't enjoy playing it not saying everyone did campaigns or anything else like that at all but it was fun with a capital f yeah, definitely. I think it, like you say, a lot of the 90s was quite angsty. 
and about occult or witchcraft or existentialism or something like that. And this was just unashamedly a, a like glorious, uh, fun time. And saying, imagine you're an action hero, kicking ass and taking names. There you go. And mm-hmm. he, he sort of borrowed that idea or developed its own style, I guess, when Robbie wrote it. In, in terms of um, when we mentioned Deadlands, gave the he talked to the GM like he was a person. Um, Feng Shui talked to the GM like he was his best mate having a pint down the pub. It yeah. was full of stuff like chapter headings called "The Map Is Not Your Friend." and Kia mm-hmm. with an exclamation mark at the end of it and all kinds of call outs and little bits of stuff that just just like you couldn't help read it and, and just, you just got excited reading it because it was like this sounds like it's amazing and this guy's going this is the best thing ever you should definitely play this game and this is why it's great and you're going yes it is and you just buy into it mm-hmm. and that enthusiasm just transfers to the table doesn't it or it certainly has anything I've played you, you get a, I mean I've run it a couple of times you get a pick up of people generally nobody's played the game before um, and within five minutes, people are like high kicking, doing spinning back fists, flipping off buildings, jumping from car to car, doing all the kinds of stuff you see in TV and other media, and uh, just having a whale of a time. And it, it reinforces all that stuff. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant stuff. Um, it survived to um, to a, a kickstarted second edition, which is brought properly up to date. It's, it is bigger. Um, it's it's still really really good. <laughs> and, and Robin Lords has managed to like reinvent his game and, and keep all the stuff that's good in it. I mean, you can't keep everybody happy with the second edition, but it is a genuine second edition that is up to date, yeah. brand new, and has folded in a bunch of stuff that's happened because it turns out the nineties was a long time ago, and back then Hong Kong was was a British colony, and you know cell phones weren't readily available, and now it's not, and they are, and that changes things. Um, but it's still bonkers yeah. and you can still have really good fights and throw cars at each other and it's got a scenario called Four Bastards I mean how can you not like a game that's got that involved I just <laughs> really good stuff it's it's one of those games that's got like genuinely good supplements that you can read through and mm. um, like they're, they're not like essential it's not like the splat books or like we say about Brave New World where you need the extra book uh, to be able to play it it's just all as new ideas and it's new gameable content and I think that's something that's carried forward to the modern day in terms of what we want from our gaming books now is stuff that I can game with, not uh, incredibly long stories of bad fiction. Yeah, uh, and the the best there were some really good reads in the nineties in amongst all the craft as well, and 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 our preferences are probably showing because all of the stuff we recommend as being just a cracking good read was written by Greg Stoltzy, our recent guest, <laughs> because he he had a hand in in pretty much all the good stuff and in none of the bad stuff. True. And uh, that really brings us up to the two thousands at that point. So um, that, that's our quick trot through the nineties, Baz. That's not bad, is it? As a decade, I think it was one of the, the best decades for role playing games, just due to sheer variety. And and when I looked back over this, and there's a fairly lengthy sort of set of mini reviews in the Smart Zine, um, mm. which you can get. And and one of the things that stood out for me was the sheer variety of gaming that was going on. Yeah, there were some trends. Yeah, there were some fashions. Um, but it was all slightly bonkers and very little of it was about going into a dungeon to beat up monsters or flying a spaceship around a universe of millions of different stars um, or even really finding tentacled monsters because the massive emissions from the list that we haven't spoken about today from a release point of view is D&D, Traveller, Call of Cthulhu yeah. Or RuneQuest, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. The big the big players were, were largely absent in the 90s or, or riding their back catalogue very, very hard indeed. 
D&D never got a release outside of compilations and stuff like that for the whole of that decade. That's bonkers to think of. That's crazy. Traveller yeah. is Traveller is utterly absent. Call of Cthulhu was still obviously doing stuff mm. for its game, but you know, it just it wasn't a as a publisher quiet quiet decade and that made room that made room for everybody else to go mad and release games like cyber generation and castle falkenstein and over the edge mm-hmm. that made room for that to happen it was a really interesting time to go to conventions in the 90s because yeah sure enough there were people playing AD&D and it was, still was AD&D and there was a lot of cthulhu games and stuff like that but around the fringes of any convention in the 90s was usually people like you and me offering up weird games and there's always weird people willing to play weird games. Yeah, it's, it's, it is actually a feature that I, I remember going to Loughborough quite a few times to the Gen Con there and playing something like Deadlands when it was new or Castle Falkenstein didn't seem weird. It didn't seem odd or fringe. It was just like the, a lot of the games on offer seemed to be those kind of things. It, and it was, yep. I don't know whether we've got a bit more uh, factionalised in the current world, but certainly back then it just seemed to be like it's another role-playing game and it's cool and we'll play it. And it, it wasn't a matter mm. of having one true game is a more India versus Trad or anything like that. It was just like, these are all games, we're going to try them all because they're all cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there was a feeling you could try them all as well because we've gone through a large proportion of games because self-publishing still wasn't a thing then. The internet was barely a thing. So you still had to go and get your book from the, the friendly local game store. And a game store would have all of these things in stock and more. There wasn't a huge amount going on with small press um, it hadn't exploded the way that it does now with Kickstarter and, and everybody with a copy of Word on their laptop can do what they like. Mm. So it was, it was in some ways, it was a way of um, maybe as GMs, our creativity for writing our own stuff was perhaps a bit dented. I don't know. But there were so many new games to try and they weren't all pushing adventures either. Uh, but I remember skipping around an awful lot of games in that decade and that not being a bad thing, actually. It was a, a really good education. You can't do that now. You can't play all the games that are out there because all of these are still out there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it was um, it was an exciting time as well because it was only when you went to Gen Con or something like that or a big trade show, you could buy a lot of this stuff. Like, you mm. know, quite often retailers wouldn't have it yet. Or, you know, like, like I say, White Wolf used to come up and do a stand and they would come with boxes and boxes of Werewolf Wild West or whatever because it wasn't in shops yet. And after the show, it yep. would eventually sort of trickle out to retailers and stuff, and they may get a copy. But um, you couldn't order stuff on Amazon like we can now, or your favourite other mm-hmm. retailer, and it turns up at your doorstep the next day. You saved up for three months to go to a, a convention, and then you like ran around the trade hole finding these things and mm-hmm. plucking Falkenstein out of a bucket and going like, "What's this new thing that we've never heard of? This looks interesting. Let's have yep. this." And you come on weighed down with uh, several kilograms of books that you were like just thrilled to read through. Yeah. Exciting time. Yeah. Though. Yeah. Yeah, but different times, and um, you know, you don't have to pine for the past because it, everything we've talked about today is still available, mm. and and they're all very, very, very playable. They'll be crunchy as anything, and they'll have their issues with them in sometimes, and they'll be missing bits and what have you. But you know, nostalgia's nostalgia's a big thing, and and when we go back to the eighties, to that like reign of games, we've not looked at that decade. Some of those games you opened up talking about Judge Dread, they are creaky. They are almost. <laughs> unplayable maybe all of the games we've talked about today are very very playable and if you offered them out now or wanted to grab a copy and give it a run you'd get players and it would work mm. yeah definitely I'm, I'm running out of earth on as I say 
Um, I'd love to see somebody do some Falkenstein and some of the other stuff, certainly over the edge, but I don't see anywhere near enough uh, conventions. Mm, That'd true. be great. True. Um, yeah, I'd like to see a little bit of revival of some of the old stuff and get it out again, because like you said, they are all still good. There's, there's a lot to like in there. Yeah, except Nobilis. Bunkers. Yeah, well, screw that. <laughs> I tried that once and that's enough anyway let's try and finish more positively so um, yeah I think the 90s is good there's still a gold mine out there like I said there's a lot of stuff you can get quite cheap on PDF and things like that now so it's well worth having to flip back if you're struggling to work out what to get these days you want some inspiration it's well worth diving into that old treasure trove and get some ideas from them even if you don't play the games themselves it might be worth picking up like a humble bum- bundle of uh, Torg or something like that and just flicking through the, the books and getting some ideas for stuff so it's definitely a little mind that you can go and just get some ideas out of. Absolutely. Okay, right. Really cool to go back to the past, mate. I guess next time we'll look to the future a little bit more, uh, yeah. bring in some new voices, stuff like that. So thanks ever so much for getting in touch with us over the last few weeks, guys. It's It's been really, really good to see your comments, whether it be whether it be on the new UK Role Players Forum, whether it be on our G Plus community, our Facebook community, uh, or especially to our patrons. You keep us going and we do appreciate it. So do get in touch. Um, this episode was brought to you by a comment from one of our loyal listeners, and the next one should be and could be yours. Thanks for listening, guys, and see you next time. 